What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today, we are talking with Bob Mould of Husker Du. Now, Husker Du came out of the hardcore punk scene and was incredibly influential on what later became alternative rock. Rolling Stone called Husker Du's album Zen Arcade one of the greatest punk albums of all time. Legend had it that Black Francis found Kim Deal for the Pixies with an ad in a Boston newspaper that said, Band seeks bassist into Husker Du and Peter, Paul, and Mary. And Dave Grohl may have put it most succinctly when he said, No Husker Du, no Foo Fighters. On a personal note, Bob was actually the last show I saw before things shut down because of the pandemic, and it was a powerful and epic set where it was just one man, one electric guitar. Bob has a new album out called Blue Hearts, as well as a 24-CD box set called Distortion that chronicles his post-Husker Du music, including his solo work and his music with the band Sugar. Now, at Hardcore Humanism, we want to help people find their purpose and work hard to achieve it. And so we talk with people on this podcast who have faced and overcome serious obstacles to figure out who they are and how to live their best life. Right now, three big obstacles that many of us are facing are the deadly coronavirus, political turmoil, and uncertainty about how to pursue our work and our purpose. So the timing is perfect to talk with Bob, who I think can give us some perspective on this moment based on what he lived through during the 80s, a time with many parallels to today, where the country faced the global HIV-AIDS epidemic, societal tension and division around government, and tremendous difficulty in pursuing work in the arts and music, especially for the hardcore punk community. As a gay man, Bob very directly experienced the fear and uncertainty around HIV-AIDS in the 80s. What is it? How did it spread? Who was vulnerable? What do we as a society do to balance personal freedom with reducing transmission? He's experienced a country in political turmoil with polarizing views about the Reagan administration. And as a performing artist and member of the hardcore community in the 80s, Bob was on the forefront of finding ways to move ahead with work and culture without conventional support. And so Bob's experience can be tremendously helpful as we today face the coronavirus, political turmoil and so many barriers towards achieving our work, creativity, and purpose. So let's hear what Bob has to say. Why don't we go back to the 80s to start and talk about what was happening back then for people who either weren't alive or weren't paying attention during that time. I was born in 1960, and I grew up in a small uh, farm town in northern new york state called malone right on the canadian border and it was you know maybe a town of five thousand people and you know a very homogenous town you know not many people of color not many lgbtq folk of which i knew i was one at a pretty young age i was able to identify my sexuality but not my sexual identity uh when i was i was looking for a way to to, you know, get to the big city, I guess, as a high school kid. And uh, I started applying for college scholarships very early in high school, like my sophomore year. And uh, I was lucky enough to receive a full underprivileged scholarship to McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. In the fall of 1978, I went out to begin my my higher education, you know, and, and you know, as, as a child, my passion was always music. You know, I was, I was very lucky 
as a kid, I was able to buy a few albums a year at the drugstore. And when my mom and dad bought a uh, like a Dobie Gillis type grocery store that was attached to the house we lived in, my dad was able to buy jukebox singles from the vending company in town. So those were my toys as a child. I taught myself music. So anyways, to 78, I go out to McAllister College, which for people who don't know, the school is a small liberal arts college. And, uh, you know, during the 60s, they uh, were very involved with the SDS, Students for Democratic Society. And it was a real hotbed of activism. Big political science school, Humphrey and Mondale taught there. Kofi Annan went to school there. So immersed in this entirely new world, you know, with many cultures and many that I didn't recognize from my upbringing and, you know, sort of an eye opener for me, uh, had to leave some of my, uh, some of the words I learned listening to my father as a young child, I had to leave those words behind, (laughs) you know, and then was very fortunate to meet a couple of guys, a fellow named Grant Hart and another fellow named Greg Norton. And we started this group called Husker Du in 1979. Uh, and you know, sort of became a fairly well-known local band, punk rock band, and then started touring around the country and started meeting other like-minded musicians. And, you know, it was a whole really interesting world, you know, just a lot of you know, really colorful characters, a lot of, a lot of diverse characters. And, uh, you know, those are really good memories. So I guess people are probably now wondering why are we, drawing parallels between 1984 and 2020. As I said, I've got a new album coming out in late September. And about this time last year, I started to have these feelings that I had seen the movie that I was living in before. And specifically, this would have been the fall of 2019, thinking about the fall of 1983. And the I was starting to notice a lot of parallels. When I think back to 1980 when I'm thinking about being at McAllister College and remembering seeing kids with you know briefcases and uh, suits and ties calling themselves the Young Republicans, and also recognizing you know the it was the the advent no pun intended of the moral majority, and you know there was a lot of forces at play in the in the country. And, uh, you know, to me, the I look back and I think about the, the evangelicals and how much support they put behind this television actor named Ronald Reagan. And, uh, you know, they they got him in power. And, you know, within a couple of years, it was very clear that, you know, we, we had a health crisis with HIV AIDS. As I said, I was a, a gay young man certain of my you know sexual preference but not understanding my sexual identity so i you know am growing up in this environment where i'm being told that i'm less than because of who i am and you know there was a lot of people very scared about hiv you know can you get it from sneezing can you get it from a water fountain can you you know all these all these things that are you know part of partly natural you know reactions but also being informed by this moral majority view that, you know, AIDS was God's punishment for homosexuality. So imagine a 22-year-old in that environment. Not a lot of fun. And I guess where the parallel comes in or where 
made itself known to me last year was, gee, 2016, we have another television actor who draws most of his support from evangelicals. Huh. Starting to feel really familiar, but much worse than the first time around. So that was the motivating factor behind many of the words for this new record, Blue Hearts. And uh, the record was recorded in February of this year. And, you know, by March 1st, it was it was complete. There was no changing the record. And that coincided with the sort of acknowledgement that we were about to have a pandemic with the coronavirus. And I just, I guess at that moment, thought to myself, you can't make this stuff up. So I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I tell you, you know, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. But one of the things I want to go back to is this distinction that you're making between sexual preference and sexual identity. And for the people listening, you know, number one, what is that distinction and how do societal forces telling you that there's something wrong with who you are and who you want to be? How does that impact maybe the, the transition from knowing you have a sexual preference to assuming a full-on sexual identity. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, when I was young, you know, I mean, at 10, 11 years old, I knew I was a boy who fancied boys. I did not fancy girls in the sense that other boys would fancy girls. So, you know, I was able to identify that and act on it as an older boy, a young man, so that's like I prefer the physical company of other males. So that would make me a homosexual. But there's also this larger world of lesbian, gay, bi, trans, queer, questioning, you know, intersex. There's all, you know, now many decades later, there's many ways that people identify themselves. You know, back then it was pretty much your, your, you're gay. And I, again, growing up in a small town, I had no idea what that really meant. Then when you, you know, moving forward a couple of years to, you know, something like the, the onset of, you know, all the different illnesses that presented and eventually became packaged as HIV or AIDS, you know, just when, you know, when you're, when you're young and you know you're different, you learn a set of coping skills. You learn how to pass, is what we used to call it. You can pass as straight. You can be gay, but you can pass straight. You can play football. You can be butch. You can, you know, that was that was life for me in the late 70s and early 80s. But again, when, you know, your government is telling you, well, you know, we took a poll and half the people in America think that the gay people should be, you know, rounded up and quarantined. And a third of third of Americans think anybody with AIDS should be tattooed. And, you know, I mean, there are historical precedents for that kind of thinking and they're not comfortable ones. So when, you know, for me personally, I just it was very unsettling because I'm like being told sort of subhuman and then you, you know, for me, what was happening was feeling like I was denying, you know, the exploration of my sexual identity, because clearly at this point, we don't know how 
HIV is truly transmitted. I mean, there was a couple years there where it was a lot of speculation. And, you know, to compound the parallels, a lot of it was Tony Fauci, you know, in the NIH. I mean, he was doing a lot of work with HIV AIDS and, you know, was getting a lot of blowback from the gay community as well. Like, you're not doing enough. You're not doing enough fast enough. I mean, you know, I mean, surely people know Larry Kramer's story and they know the history of ACT UP and how that, you know, Larry Kramer telling Tony Fauci, we're going to start a riot on you, you know, to, to get to get noticed. I mean, this is, you know, I hope that answers it somehow in both general and personal, you know, context. You know, no, it's it's what's so striking about that is how how frightening that must have been, especially I mean, as as a as a full grown man with a network, it would be frightening. But as a kid who maybe doesn't have a network of of other LGBT kids and is being told again by these very powerful figures that not only is there something wrong, but there are consequences that might happen for Mm -hmm. assuming this identity. You know, look, it sounds terrifying, quite frankly. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think to, you know, to sort of bring it forward to, you know, the current time, I mean, I really, when people say, you know, people say, well, all lives matter. It's like, wait a minute. The Black Lives Matter movement is a is a very specific movement. And to take it back to what I said about learning how to pass, if you're a person of color, how do you do that? Yeah, it's a it's a very and well, I think I think what it speaks to is how difficult it is to truly empathize with someone if you're not going through that. And I think that's one of the main the main things, you know, I've been around people who are blatantly discussing anti-Semitism. You know, you talk about the mm-hmm. rounding up and the putting the tattoos. That's that's never yep. worked very well for my people. No, and no. But I could be in those conversations and listening to someone, especially because I have a shaved head, and have people actually assume that, for lack of better saying it, I'm one of them. And yep. that's that's very powerful. Like, you know, I've been in situations where I'm thinking to myself, I, you know, if somebody figures out that I'm Jewish here, this this might not go well for me. And so if you if you're not able to, you know, again, like you're talking about skin color and things like that, uh, I don't know that people who have not been through that can really understand how threatening that may be. Yeah. And and, you know, and as we as we were coming up on June of this year and, you know, my album cycle was beginning and my campaign was beginning, you know, we were announcing the first track right in the middle of all of the George Floyd situation you know that that's senseless murder and you know that happening in minneapolis where i you know i mean that's that's where i began my musical career and you know just watching all of that unfold to me it was like i need to put my own cause aside for a moment like i can empathize with black lives matter but it's it's very difficult for you know, for people of color in this country, and especially now when you have the leader of the country has, un, you know, undone Pandora's box, you know, and, and our centuries of history and has been playing, you know, the this, you know, nativism card again. It's, yeah. And if you don't, and if for people that are listening, if you don't, I mean, you, you probably have gay folk in your family. You might have people of color in your in your you know in your relative 
family, but you know, it's, it's really something. It really puts, it put me on edge in my twenties. I was constantly just vigilant about how gay can I be? How can I, who am I? Where do I fit in the community? You know, again, I was, you know, I was a punk rock musician and it was a, it was an accepting tolerant scene that I grew up in, but still it's, it's when you're being told all the time, you're, this is, you deserved this for something I didn't even know I did. So, yeah, I think people now you, you know, we all need to really try to understand how difficult it is when you're being marginalized for something you had no control over. It's not like, you know, gay people decide they're going to be gay and do bad things. Therefore, this is the the consequence. It's just, this is, we're just people like everybody else. And yeah, it's just people need to consider these things, you know? Well, and, and, you know, one of the things that, that I always find fascinating and inspiring is that with all of that pressure coming down on you, and, you know, the direct pressure, indirect pressure, the the temptation, if you will, to deny your sexuality must have been tremendous. And I'm, the, the thing that I'm always wondering about is how did you resist that? Because that's the thing that, like, people can apply in their lives, if some, even if something that's a little bit different from from sexuality. Like, how were you able to have the fortitude to do that? Well, I was lucky that I, you know, I was lucky that the two people I worked with in my first band, Husker Du, were were very understanding. Most of the people in our scene were very understanding. I, again, just had no idea what, you know, HIV AIDS was all about. It took so long for the government to address it properly and fairly. We, you know, a lot of us were in limbo. And, you know, for me, I just denied myself until I found a boyfriend and got into a monogamous relationship. And then I told myself I was safe. And, you know, I think back on a lot of my friends and my colleagues and people from my generation, you know, who had different outcomes, you know, and it's just, it's a lot to consider for me. I just, I worked around it and, I think my lament, I guess, about that is why I am so upfront now about what I see happening in the current government in the world is, uh, you know, that we're living in. I feel sometimes like I denied myself and in doing so, I lost my own voice for the community or as part of the community. And that's my lament. So this time around, I'm not going to stay silent. You know, I'm going to be twice as loud as I should be because, you know, I'm sort of making up for my own lost time in a sense. Yeah. And now can you, if you don't mind talking about that, because I, you know, on a musical level, I I knew you in a different context, but as you know, as a more recently as an artist, I certainly, at least not knowing you directly, but I, I conceptualize you as an advocate. And so I'm kind of curious what was happening earlier that you felt like you weren't as in touch with that. And then what, what that transition was? Well, I think, I think looking back, there were, you know, real positive 
political role models at the time in the music community. You know, I think of, you know, I think of Tom Robinson or I think of Jimmy Somerville or I think of Boy George. You know, there's, a, you know, there's been like lots of, you know, Katie Lang a little bit later in the, you know, a little bit later as time went on, you know, people who, who were able to be examples for the community. And I felt like maybe I didn't do enough because I wasn't out until, you know, out as an out gay man until 1994. I mean, most people suspected, but that was officially when I, when, when I came out in the professional light, you know, it just, it, there were things that I did, you know, and, and that Husker Du did to create awareness and to give to the community. I mean, I remember it would have been 83, maybe 84. We did some work with uh, one of my mentors, the late John Giorno. He uh, brought Husker Du into sort of the beat poetry world and was helping to promote our music. And he had done a compilation record called A Diamond Hidden in the Mouth of a Corpse. And it was a lot of different artists contributing music to this record. And I remember we went to John and said, how about we donate all of the royalties to, you know, to an AIDS foundation or a charity that's doing work. And he, and he quickly said, oh my gosh, that'd be great. I've got these couple friends that just started, they started up this thing called God's Love We Deliver. And um, we said, great, that sounds good. Let's give them all the money. That'll be great. So, I mean, you know, we were doing things, you know, to help the community. But I, you know, and then when I started to see what ACT UP was doing in 1989, then it started shaking me a little harder that, you know, maybe I wasn't as vocal as I should have been. And because I wasn't out, I felt like, God, am I, you know, like, I don't fancy myself a role model, but so it was that battle, you know, and, and I still have that battle to this day. You know, I, I'm kind of curious because this is something that I, I struggle with a lot with my clients who I work with, you know, when I'm when I'm talking with them and they'll you know, they'll talk to me in particular if somebody is African-American or part of the LGBTQ community or as a woman. And, and one of the things that will come up a lot is, am I doing enough for the cause? You know, mm-hmm. and and I'm kind of curious your opinion on this because but because one of the things I always say to them is that is that your presence in the world, from my perspective, and, and being there and and you know being healthy and look living through a lot of these difficult things is in theory I think enough mm-hmm. as a starting point so that if you you know I think that like to say so to feel guilty because you're not doing more feels like it's not validating everything you're doing by just being you in the context of bias or discrimination. That being said, that if you want to do more and you want it from from that point of view, I think that that's fantastic. But I try to push back a little bit about the should because I feel like, man, like, you know, so for you as an example, it's like you, know, you, you went through all this like during a very difficult time. I, th- I think it's fantastic. I think the world is better because you're an advocate. But if you're sitting there being like, I, I should do more, it's sort of like, I, I don't know, to me, I always evaluate people's self-talk as if someone else were coming and saying it to them. And I feel like if someone came and said to you, well, you know, you should be doing more, I'd be like, you know what, like this guy like came out during a very difficult time. Who are you to tell them that they should do more? And if he wants to do more, 
that's that's fine. So I'm I'm kind of curious your perspective on it because I don't want to be, for lack of a better saying, giving people bad advice. No, no, no. I think I think everything you said is absolutely true. You know, for me personally, yeah. I mean, I did have people, a couple people say, "Gosh, you know, wish you could wish you would have come out a little bit sooner." And you know, and I take that to heart, but I also balance that out with infinitely more people coming and saying we're so glad you did you do what you do and you did what you did and we understand you did it why you know why you did it when you did it so you know i think overwhelmingly the you know people are good about it you know i i don't know i'm just the kind of guy that it's always you know i always feel like i should be doing more or <laughs> well so no and it's it's it's, it's, it's a, that on me so no 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 and it's and the thing is that's tough about that and i, I you know i'll say it to people it's a very endearing quality like i like people who always feel like they could be doing more. Like I remember when I interviewed uh, buzz from the Melvins and he's just like, you know, I was talking about his work ethic. He's like, I, I don't work hard enough. Like it was very, it was very apparent that like he had this thing in his head that says like, I'm just not working hard enough, no matter how much someone may say otherwise. And I, I think that's a very endearing quality. It's a potential wrecking ball emotionally for somebody though. You know, okay. if it's not, if it's not handled right. Yeah, I think I think what you said about just being being present as yourself and how you, you know, how you treat people, you know, that's the important thing. But again, you know, for me, again, is if you're a public figure or a person of note that has, you know, can can say things and people listen. Yeah, it's always that tough. It's always that tough line to walk. And even now in 2020, you know, I've written this very, you know, this sort of pointed political protest record. And I look around and I wonder why more of my peers are not doing the same. I mean, some of them are. And, you know, in that situation, I, I say to myself, who am I to call out my colleagues? Because they have families to support and maybe they can't afford to alienate half of their fan base by taking a hard stance. Whereas, you know, for me, it's like I'm going to do more because I'm willing to lose 40 plus years of professional currency to because I feel like right now it is so dire that I need to say the things I am saying with force. So, yeah, and it's also, you know, there's also multiple ways of, of, for lack of better saying it, of, of fighting a battle, you know? And so, you know, take you as an example, you know, your advocacy is obviously very powerful, but also just you as a, as a person and as an artist, I think there's something that's, you know, and, and we talked about this right before we started recording, but, you know, you were actually the last concert I saw before the pandemic wow. at, yeah. and at, at SOPAC in South Orange. And, you know, one of the things that I was was struck by was, which I, I would like to talk about a little bit at some point, is one man, one guitar. Like mm -hmm. I, I'd never seen, I'd seen that acoustic before, but I'd never seen it electric before. Yeah. And you know, and so as an example, it's like, you know, when when you think of people who may have stereotypes against the LGBTQ community, right? And then you know, there's they're saying something directly about it, but then there's also the symbol of it, which is like. This is a guy who came up in the hardcore era, the hardcore era. You know what I mean? This is someone who's still doing it this way. He's up on stage with one guitar and he's blowing the, you know, he's blowing everybody away. And that also, I think, you know, for people who may, 
not necessarily be speaking up. There, there still is something to that. That if you're if you're known, you know, let's say you're, you're a member of the LGBT community and you're having that success, there is something that's still powerful about that. Um, obviously, the combination is particularly powerful, but it's still something. I think, from my perspective, at least. No, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, yeah, I mean, you know, going back early into my career, you know, I knew that, you know, the aggressive you know, loud rock guy presentation that, that was, that was me and it still is me. You know, I, I, I learned, you know, some really great lessons along the way about the craft. You know, when I looked at someone, you know, who I, who I admired, you know, late Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks, you know, Pete always, you know, the thing I learned from Pete that I still carry to this day is writing songs in, you know, most of my songs, I should say, in a gender neutral setting, you know, I mean, that's, that's very empowering. You know, I guess I, I always was a little bit concerned, like, am I going to be a gay artist or am I just going to be an artist? Because, you know, in the late eighties, there was still that kind of distinction being made. I'm not, I'm not saying it's unfair or fair. I think I just, that was my perception of it at the time, but through Pete Shelley's work in the Buzzcocks, it taught me that a love song is a love song is a love song, regardless of the gender of the antagonist and protagonist. It's is two people in a relationship. And that, you know, that is what is at the end of the day, that's what it's about and how I, and how I would, how I present on stage. That's yeah. That's just, I'm I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm just a big, big uh, destructive bull running around a stage or something. <laughs> well, no, and it's and it's right and it's and and that's the thing obviously that again is so powerful because it's a visceral experience and oh, it's yeah. sort of you know and I could I could imagine for people, you know, when there's such intense discrimination, you know, one thing I could imagine is being like, look, I don't want to like like a lot of times when people have cancer and later on they could go for like counseling or you know, or therapy about it. They say, look, I don't want to be a patient anymore. You know, I just want to get away from that identity for a little bit. And uh-huh. I can imagine that when someone is under intense discrimination, just being like, listen, I, I want to, I don't want to have that be something that's in every one of my interactions necessarily. Like maybe I need some place where, like you said, like a love song is just a love song. But then later on, where where there's more safety in that and maybe a little less discrimination or at least a little less overt discrimination it's easier then to come back and be like okay now now I, I can have that like i can be in the world and be an artist and not just be a gay not there be anything wrong with being a gay artist but like just not being like that label but now that that's the case i can i can come back now a little bit to it and embrace it a little bit more because it's a little Absolutely. bit safer Absolutely. That's absolutely it. It, uh, you know, I mean, we've made, I think we've made a lot of progress in the, in the last few decades, you know, as far as, as far as, you know, the, the community being recognized as, you know, valid and important. And we create a lot of joy for the world. We create a lot of culture and a lot of art and a lot of, a lot of good memories for the world. And I think, you know, people have gotten much better and there's been so many things, you know, so many different moments that have, you know, forwarded the cause. And, and now I think that idea of being labeled as a gay artist or a queer artist or, you know, and I think it's one thing if people, you know, I think now, you know, it feels like I think all of us are more comfortable with additional adjectives about who we are as it relates to our work. 
you know, for me, it's I don't feel like I have to keep my my lives or desires or motivations, you know, work versus love. And I don't need to compartmentalize them anymore, which is nice. You know, it's it's now I feel more whole, you know, whole as in a whole whole being. So it's yeah, it's that's, yeah. that's progress. <laughs> well, no, and it's and it's so important, I think, that now, you know, somebody like yourself, because I mean, look, like I, even, you know, anti-Semitism is a thing in this country, but I don't think yeah. it's at, at the level of, of some other level, you know, other types of discrimination. I mean, not that you need to compare them, but but even as somebody growing up Jewish, it was like it was annoying that every time you were watching a movie or seeing like a TV show, like the Jewish character was just like it was like everyone was Woody Allen. You know what I mean? It was yeah. like this like, oh, yeah. it was like, oh, my God, like, you know, stereotypically Jewish. And it's been and, you know, then you find out later that, like, you know, half your heroes were all Jewish and they changed their names, you know. But, like, yeah. like you know, like, if I'd known that, like, Joey Ramone and Gene Simmons and Perry Farrell were Jewish, yeah, you know, yeah, like, right? yeah. and Henry Winkler at all, I mean, Henry Winkler, I probably should have figured it out. But, like, yeah. you know, all these, all their shatter, all these people, like, but it really was such a difference. As, and, and, and look, and I'm, I'm, I'm a middle-aged man now, so I don't know if it matters as much, but it's nice to be able to watch a TV show or a movie where someone's Jewish and they're not like Jewish. Like it's just, they're just Jewish. Like they happen to Mm -hmm. be Jewish and they can be like the love interest or the cool guy or whatever, which was not the case before. And so, you know, your, your presence in the world, like, you know, again, in addition to the advocacy is like, wow, like, so you can be Bob mold, like someone Mm -hmm. who's not only doing it now, but someone who did it during the hardcore era, the most like intense and like incendiary, you know, and, and also being a member of Husker Du, you know, yeah. that like and like that matters, I feel like to kids who are like sitting there being like, I'm I'm aware of my sexuality and I'm thinking about my identity. It's like, well, mm-hmm. now I can. Well, here's one thing that I could be. I, I could be a kick ass rock star. That's that's yeah. pretty cool. You know, yeah. that matters. No. Yeah. So that's yeah, that is definitely the good news. I feel good about the youth of today. You know, I mean, they. I think they see it right now. I think they see that there is, you know, everybody should be viewed as equal. Everybody should be judged on how they treat other people and what they contribute and not so much on, you know, you know, the color of their skin or their sexual preference or any of those kind, you know, religion, any of those kinds of things. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all people and, you know, we all have something to offer. And, you know, typically when we just get to, we get down to sharing stories. That's we find these commonalities and then we build on that as opposed to beginning with division, which is unfortunately the, the uh, it's been the mantra of this country for the last three and a half, four years. Well, you know, and I want to, I want to actually use that statement to pivot for a moment because, you know, obviously there's levels of distress right now. You know, there's people who are dying. There's people who are sick. There's people who are losing their economic well-being. There's racial tension. There's all this kind of stuff. And But one of the things that has typically brought us together, like you said, sharing the stories, is around culture, arts, music, you mm-hmm. know, that you could be sitting there. You know, I, it's always very, you know, I think a lot of people, Tommy Morello, you know, sort of laughed at like, you know, people kind of in the media or on Twitter were saying like, well, I like Rage Against the Machine, but not their politics. And it's sort of like, or like, I wish they would stop with the politics and sort of like, oh, you've been listening the whole time and not really like you've been digging it without fully digging it, maybe necessarily. Mm-hmm. But you've been in a room with other people who maybe had very different political beliefs 
just completely rocking out. And one of the things that people are afraid of now, again, con- you know, accepting that there are things that might be more immediately at, at risk, a lot of people are concerned about the loss of of culture, loss of, of, of underground music, of shows, yeah. like where, where, where these were the places that people go to have those connections. And, and, you know, I'm kind of curious because, you know, what you think about that, because it wasn't that easy during the hardcore era either. It's not like the world was just with open arms about hardcore, you know, and I'm kind of curious, just your, your sense of, of, of this moment in time and like, how do people navigate that? Yeah. Well, you know, again, back in the early eighties with the hardcore scene, a lot of that was, you know, networks of independent musicians in various cities around North America and around the rest of the world who, you know, would go to the abandoned VFW hall and offer them 50 bucks if they could use the room to put on a punk rock show. So, you know, there was this entire world was constructed, you know, just from imagination because there was no way to enter the mainstream corporate rock world. It was exclusive. It was off limits. And this was the best we could do in the current day uh, with culture and, you know, in history and how it relates to music and music venues. You know, I start thinking about places like Webster Hall or I start thinking about places like First Avenue or, you know, Metro in Chicago you know, or the Fillmore here in San Francisco. And, you know, these are heritage sites for American arts and culture. And I worry that they're not they're not going to be protected as time goes on. I mean, they're our entire world that we built you know, on the culture and art side is in grave peril right now. We are not large airlines. We are not large corporations. You know, we're, we're a fragile web of independent workers who all support this one cause of culture. And it's going to be tough. I hope that we can hold on. You know, I hope that we can solve this huge problem this pandemic i hope that the government understands how valuable the arts and culture are to the fabric of american life i hope that people out there understand that it's not just the stars and the stages but there's you know an entire infrastructure behind that of agents and you know road crew and things like that that you know there's just not you know, we need more relief specifically in that in that area. You know, for me, yeah, I, I can't work. You were telling me you were second, third row at the show, you know, in South Orange. I am guessing you probably felt some aerosol at some point during the show. I can't confirm or deny that other than to say that it's very possible that the answer was yes. Yeah. So I know. So I know with my I came home saying I came home saying I'm, I'm fairly sure. That, that Bob mold sweat on me. All right. I, I know yeah. I feel like that's happening. I'm not going to shower for like, you know, a couple of days. And uh, so, you know, the, the, the force that I sing with, and I will probably be the last person to go back to work <laughs> because of it. So, so I've sort of accepted my, my fate for the time being, because I, 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 I don't want to cause harm to anyone nor do i want anyone coming being uncertain of their own health so i get to stay home the longest and i'm not real thrilled about it because it's well it's about 90 percent of my income but these are the things that we have to do it's you know it's just really making sure that 
you know, that we reopen carefully in our business. I get really upset when I see renegade musicians, you know, sort of putting on, you know, unsafe shows, you know, just because that's the only time we'll ever say their name is in the in the wake of a foolish act. <laughs> it's, we, we really got to, you know, we got to protect this thing, you know, and yeah, it's going to be a, it's going to be a challenge, you know. What, what do you think people can do? I mean, I'm, I'm actually, you know, thinking a lot about that and like talk with people about it, you know, because you, because, you know, I've never myself been a part or at the beginning of any kind of important cultural movement, you know, like, like I was, you know, I wasn't in the Bronx for hip hop. I wasn't at CBGBs with punk. I wasn't mm-hmm. in any of the thousand places for hardcore, like, or, or Birmingham for metal, you know, and it was, I wasn't, yeah. you know, but so I, I don't know that I, I understand like intuitively how you help spark a scene, but you know, there's, I think there's a lot of people out there right now. who are thinking like, well, I want to do something. You know, like I'm, I'm thinking even about like, like, do I like I have a backyard? Like, do I have outdoor like distance concerts so that there's people who could play? Like, is like, you know, like I, you know, someone like someone like yourself who went through it, where you guys, like you said, would would just figure out what to do. I'm kind of curious if you're seeing any lanes right now where people are like, you know, people could try this and it might get something going, or is it just like now nah, until you know until the pandemic's over? It's kind of one of my colleagues who plays bass in my band is uh, Jason Narducci. He lives in Evanston, which is just north of Chicago, Illinois, and he's been working with a local promoter, and they've been doing socially distant uh, concerts where Jason shows up with his guitar and amp and a tiny PA and will play outdoors for maybe 30, 40 people who are you know, spaced properly. And uh, he's he's told me he's done at least 40 shows like that already. So these are these are opportunity. These are definitely there's opportunities for people like that. Again, I think it's it's being really careful about this kind of stuff. But it it could, you know, it could be a good stopgap. It could be the beginning of a new movement. I mean, there's always been a circuit. There's been a circuit in uh, in America where musicians do what are called house concerts. Yeah, yeah. And and you know that's that's been very popular. Perhaps if people have enough space and they have friendly neighbors who like music, they could do socially spaced lawn concerts. I think we'll start seeing outdoor concerts because. You know, it's just too unpredictable. We don't know how this how this virus truly operates indoors. I know yeah. there's been a, there's been a you know last weekend there was a big uh, experiment in Germany where they did three nights of concerts in the same room with the same artist, but under three different circumstances for the crowd. One was completely distanced with masks. I think the other one was. 50% capacity with some masks and the other one was a hundred percent the way it used to be, you know, so we wait four weeks and we'll see what happens there. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, science will, will help guide us through this. And in the meantime, yeah, there's, you know, outdoor, outdoor shows might be the best answer, but you know, for me personally, I love the, you know, I love the crowd. I like the crowd up close. I like everybody interacting you know the physicality of it and the singing along and i mean that's what makes it for me i think that's what makes it for people who 
who believe in religion and go to church once a week and sing together. I mean, it's really, you know, I mean, Western popular music is an extension of the, you know, of the music of the church, Catholic church, at least for me. And yeah, so, I mean, I, I understand community and singing and people really need that. And I, I'm not sure about the spaced out, you know, the spacing concerts and stuff for for what I like to do. I, I I guess I'll wait and see where we're at a year from now. No, it's obviously it's such a different experience. The you know, again, like, you know, so many movements. I mean, I know even, you know, I would take my son to hardcore shows because they're you can you know, they're all ages. A lot of mm-hmm. them. Yeah. And yeah. he was when, you know, I started started when he was you know, I think, I don't know if it was six or eight. And now, you know, he was, when he was 10, it was like, it was just fantastic. Like it was the, you know, getting all these people in a room, people of all different ages, every different races, different ethnicity, everybody like just packing and going, going crazy together. It, it's hard to replicate that. I mean, is, would it be nice to be sitting, you know, 10 feet from someone and, and, and go, yeah, like that would be better than what, what we're having now. But I can certainly understand as a, as a fan and then as someone like you as a, as a musician, it's, you know, I, I think there has to be some acknowledgement. Like, look, it's probably not in the short term going to be the same, um, right. which is tough. It's a loss. But again, I think I think those of us on the on the stage side have to be pretty responsible, you know, for our own health and for the, you know, and just for the protecting the audience and protecting the business, you know, yeah. because if, if we try to do this too soon, we're going to it will get worse and then. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 and I wish, you know, I wish a lot of the religious communities would understand this the way that I perceive it, because, yeah, it's of course, we'd love to get back and sing together and, and you know, shake hands and, and share food and do everything that we do. But it's going to be a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, just uh, real quick, anything final about the uh, the album or anything else you want to? Uh, yeah, just want to, you know, th- you know, thanks everybody for, you know, the years of support. I got a whole bunch of stuff in the pipeline. I've got uh, a new album, uh, original album with Jason and John, my, my rhythm section, the three of us making a lot of punk rock racket. That album is called Blue Hearts. It comes out on Merge Records. I've been working for a, a number of years with a label in London called Edsel Records, Demon Records. They specialize in reissues, and we've spent a number of years putting together what is going to be a career retrospective box set. It picks up at my first solo album, Workbook, that came out in 1989, and it encompasses all of the recordings, studio recordings, and some live recordings that I've done from 1989 until 2019. That box set is called Distortion. Uh, you can buy it as a 24 CD box, or you can buy four separate vinyl boxes that will contain eight or nine LPs in each box. And those releases will be staggered from October 2nd through the end of July of next year. So I've got a lot of stuff in the works. I was supposed to be touring in September with the, or in October of this year with the band. Uh, sadly that will not happen. Uh, so I guess we've got an eye on, you know, maybe a year from now, a year and a half from now when things get a little more under control, but in the meantime, lots of, lots of music to buy. And, you know, you can find me on socials, uh, Bob mold music all the way around Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Yeah. So I, I've never been busier and I'm, I'm taking this opportunity to be at home and cook all my own meals and sleep in my own bed and, 
rehab my voice and my hearing and my uh, my impinged uh, nerves on my left side. So trying to trying to lose some weight and stay in shape for when they give me the give me the all clear to go back to work. <laughs> well, it was about fantastic talking with you. Uh, you know, I wish you nothing but the best. And uh, as you uh, continue to have success, I hope you'll come back on onto our podcast. It was fantastic talking with you. Absolutely, Michael. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. So there you have it. Bob Mole talking about his understanding of the parallels between what we are facing now as a society and what we can learn from what he faced in the 80s. There are a lot of potential take-home messages from the conversation with Bob, like how difficult it is when we are not allowed to understand and explore our own identity. Bob really talked about how discrimination against gay people and HIV AIDS made it more complicated for him to embrace his sexual identity. Even later on, he describes working hard to understand himself, his music, and his advocacy in the context of who he is and what he wants in the world. And if Bob Mould, with all his accomplishments and all of his success, can struggle, then we can all be at risk. And perhaps our most useful coping mechanism is to reassure ourselves that it's okay that we don't have to have everything figured out. We just have to keep understanding ourselves, be empathic with ourselves and others, and work towards our best conceptualization of who we are and who we want to be. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear in the podcast, subscribe on your favorite app, give us a rating, and write a review. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time. <laughs>